Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and assorted earthly creatures. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rosie Candethel, PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Rachel Wren, the great, the mighty, is off this week. The first reading for November 6th is Job, chapter 19, verses 23 to 27a. Hmm. The famous, I know my Redeemer lives passage. And Tim, you're up for this one. But before you get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can help us keep the podcast going and growing by donating. It's easy to do on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And if you're a regular listener, please consider setting up a monthly donation. Three, five, ten bucks, whatever works for you. We really appreciate it. But Tim, hey, is this excerpt from Job 19 the reading that's paired with the gospel lection? Yes, most definitely. Uh, Our reading from Job was selected to supplement the reading from Luke 20, 27 to 38, which is where Jesus debates with certain uh, Sadducees, a first century Jewish sect, about the promise of bodily resurrection for God's people. And Jesus uses Exodus 3 as his proof of life after death, which, as a kind of side note here, I would probably fail Jesus for his exegetical method if you were in my intro to OT course. Failing Jesus. Now, that's a great way to start, Professor McNinch. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Anyway, Job 19 is paired with that Luke reading because Job 19 is a classic OT reference to resurrection. Folks might be familiar with it in the sort of elevated diction of the King James Version. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Right. So the traditional interpretation is that Job is expressing his faith that even after death, he will see God, quote, in the flesh. And the only way for that to happen is via physical resurrection, right? Right? Uh, But I see the look on your face, and it looks (laughs) like you might be taking us in a different direction. Yeah. I don't think this is about resurrection at all. Sorry. (laughs) Well, that makes for an awkward pairing with Luke, huh? Uh, (laughs) But I can see why you might hesitate on the whole hope-filled expression of faith and resurrection. I mean, most of the book of Job is pretty pessimistic. Yeah, exactly. The, The lectionary rips these few verses out of their context and basically invites an interpretation that I think is more or less diametrically opposed to the meaning of the text in its context. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> so so yeah. fill us in. What is actually then happening in Job when he says this stuff? Hmm. Well, these lines come more or less in the middle of the book while Job is responding to one of his buddies. This time it's Bildad, who's been insisting that Job must have done something just awful to deserve the misfortune that he's experiencing. Chapter 18 in Job is Bildad's long, eloquent speech about how only the most wicked are treated like Job. Job's response to all of that begins at the top of chapter 19. He begs Bildad and company to leave him alone and stop tormenting him with their accusations. In verse 4, he says that even if it were true that he had somehow erred, It would be none of their business. So why don't they just buzz off? Buzz off, huh? 
Well, well, <laughs> Job is never one to mince words, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, you know, as long as they're here wanting to hear his response, Job gives his accusers his own analysis of the situation. And, and here it is. According to Job, God's the one to blame for all of this. God has actually wronged him and has trapped him in a net of suffering for absolutely no reason. Verses 6 through 20 in the chapter are a long, painful litany of all the ways that God has oppressed him unfairly. The, the Hebrew geeks out there will appreciate how each clause in this, in this litany features a third masculine singular active verb, like sort of one thing right after another that God has done, God has done, God has done, with intentionality against Job. And this shows up in translations like the NRSV with a sort of string of lines that all began with he, meaning God, one after another for like a whole page. Job finally turns to his accusing friends in verse 21 and pleads with them, pity me, pity me if you're really my friends, for God's own hand has plagued me. Why do you keep hunting me down just like God has, never getting your fill of my flesh? Yikes, that's an image. <laughs> Not exactly a beatific vision of God's goodness and trust in the promise of resurrection, is it? <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. This is where the first reading for the week picks up and expresses <laughs> really the overflow of Job's exasperated, frustrated, confused, angry spirit. And I think to read this text rightly, you have to hear it with that kind of an attitude attached to it. <laughs> this is pretty painful. But okay, keep going. How do we read our lection in this context? So Job is notoriously hard to translate and to understand. So I think it might be helpful to take the famous verses here, which are 25 to 27, sort of a phrase at a time, taking a look at the Hebrew and trying to understand it together. Okay, so it starts out, As for me, I know that my quote-unquote redeemer lives. And the poem here is not quite clear whether Job means a human redeemer or God as redeemer. The Hebrew word there is goel, and uh, that term is often used of God in the Hebrew Bible. In any case, I think Job brings up redemption as a concept, though, because um, good old Bildad has just <laughs> you know, waxed eloquently about how the wicked leave no inheritance behind. Their, their legacy gets cut off by God, implying that that's what's happening to Job. The role of a goel in their culture was to ensure that when a man died with no heir, his ancestral property would be transferred to a near relative so that the family legacy could continue. So Job's insisting here, because he's innocent, even if he dies, his legacy could and, and should continue in the care of his goel whether that goel is, is human or divine. Right. That's really helpful because you're underscoring the legal obligation of the goel here, right? So mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the word redemption or redeemer gets so overused in a spiritual context that it starts to lose its true kind of legal concrete meaning here, which is really rooted in a pragmatic concern about property and legacy. Yes, definitely. And that verse goes on. And afterward, he, the Goel, will remain standing upon the earth. Earth here is the, the word afar, 
literally dust. Basically, Job is saying that someday his Goel, his Redeemer, will clear his name and preserve his legacy, even if it's after Job and everything he has is reduced to nothing more than dust. In other words, this is a part of his ongoing insistence on his innocence. Someday, somehow, he's going to be vindicated. And then now comes the important and the really confusing verse, verse 26. But even after my skin has been torn off like this from my flesh, I'll still see God, which is a, a reference to the skin disease or, or skin issue that Job has, which has come up many times in the book. So I, I think it's not so much a picture of resurrection here as it's a stubborn refusal to cave on his insistence that he's innocent. Even if he has to wait while his whole skin is being ripped off his flesh, he'll still stand there a bleeding mess of skinless flesh, insisting on getting an audience with God. Tim, that is grotesque. I mean, you're really painting a picture of a, a flayed human standing before God out of sheer obstinacy. I mean, is that yeah. is that what you're what you're telling us? Yes. Well, it's not me. That's that's what's right <laughs> there in the text. It's it's mm. the image that Job is painting in his. Uh, Poetry, we might call it. <laughs> I think we could we could call this um, poetic hyperbole. the The author of Job is using here just totally over the top language to paint a picture to emphasize that basically Job's going to keep knocking on the door of heaven, come hell or high water. <laughs> you know what would go well with this reading? Jesus's parable about the widow who wouldn't stop knocking on the judge's door until he got out of bed and gave her the support she needed. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's uh, that's Luke 18. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the, the gospel reading in the lectionary just a few weeks back. All right, so um, verse 27 then. He says, I demand to look upon God with my own eyes, I myself, and not some like stand-in after I'm dead. And the last phrase says, Kalu My kidneys, uh, I don't know, the kidneys, yeah. My kidneys collapse in my chest, which is kind of a, a weird thing to say, uh, even though in Hebrew, it has that kind of cool alliteration to it, kalu kiliotai. Um, the NRSV translates it, my heart faints within me, which is, which is not a bad translation. After all, often the kidneys are used metaphorically in Hebrew poetry to represent the kind of emotive heart or the thinking mind. Um, but here, I would actually go a different direction because the context, as we've been discussing, is all really bodily and visceral. And since the kidneys are here paired with the phrase, in my chest, I think it's best to interpret them here as referring to actual bodily organs, alongside things like Job's skin and his flesh. In other words, this here is more of that poetic hyperbole. He's saying something like, even if my bowels rupture in my gut while I'm standing here waiting, I'll be right here until God shows up to answer for all that I've endured by God's hand. So to summarize this then, this isn't actually a hopeful poem about resurrection. It's a stubborn, hyperbolic refusal 
to move a single inch until God admits that Job is in the right and doesn't actually deserve the things that he suffered. So it is, as you're saying, potentially a misinterpretation to read this with the gospel lesson as a sort of simple Old Testament proof of resurrection. Uh, And preachers should just skip this one? I know you're going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I mean, I hope not. I don't think they have to. Uh, This passage still packs a preaching punch, I think especially in a world where for many of us, things have stopped making sense. And the suffering that we see around us or even experience ourselves just seems to land indiscriminately on good and evil people. Right. So then what does Job have to say in the world that you've just described, a world like ours where suffering seems to land indiscriminately? It doesn't matter what you do. Mm -hmm. I'd suggest a couple things as sort of preaching angles to get into this text in a sermon. First, it's worth noting that um, it's okay to feel angry at God for the terrible stuff that happens and to express that kind of frustration. In the end of the book of Job, God says that Job has actually spoken rightly about God, while his friends, who have actually been busy the whole book defending God, have been the ones who've spoken wrongly. So if this book as a whole carries some authority for us, it's saying that Job is right to be angry and to insist on answers from God. And so all of our anger and frustration about how the world is or about our own suffering or that of our loved ones, when we direct it at God, the book of Job would see that as actually an expression of faith, not a crisis of faith. And sometimes the people in our pews and in our pulpits need to hear that. But secondly, in our insistence that God should step up and take responsibility for the suffering in the world, um, we should be prepared not to get exactly the kinds of answers and clarity that we want in response. Mm-hmm. Job does, in the book, finally get his audience with God. But God's quote-unquote answer to Job is that basically um, these sorts of things are above Job's pay grade. And Job can either accept that and move on, or he can remain wallowing in his misery. And Job decides to accept that. He allows himself to experience mourning over his losses, allows himself to be comforted, and he moves on with his life, scarred for sure, but also you know, surviving and enjoying also the good that comes from God. And I should also just add here that preachers will need to consider whether to lean more into sort of my first or second angles there, depending on the actual situations that are being experienced in their congregations. What what is um, pastoral and helpful in one context can come across as hurtful in another. So as always with texts that touch upon people's experiences of pain and trauma, you have to use wisdom in your preaching. Uh, not everything has to be said every time. Yeah, that's well said uh, about sensitive preaching here. Hmm. Um, well, before we end, are there any other pitfalls to watch out for with this text beyond the possible misinterpretation about resurrection? Um, sure, yeah, a couple of parting cautions. First, Job isn't presented in the Bible as a um, what we would call a historical narrative. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, and most of the book is composed as poetry, following a fictional or at least sort of folkloric character. So I I sort of like to think of Job as a big extended thought experiment. 
And it may, it may help to keep that in mind as you preach. This, this material's meaningful because it's evocative and it resonates with human experience, not because it somehow records the actual things that, that God did to some particular individual back then. And as the book also witnesses, what God actually does in the day-to-day experience of individuals is usually hidden from us. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. And then finally, um, I would just say, don't accidentally become a Bildad as you preach this text, (laughs) sort of like force feeding a bunch of philosophical theology to tell people how they ought to process their grief, um, which can be a temptation, (laughs) even with a great interpretation, like the wonderful one that I've proposed here. (laughs) So (laughs) rather than using this text as a prescription, I recommend treating these words from Job as more of an invitation, an invitation to wrestle with God in our grief. And, you know, people can welcome that invitation or they can nudge it aside for now without any judgment. That is helpful and also inviting advice there. There might even be another preaching angle hidden in that last pitfall. Do not be a bill dad. That's just good advice in general. (laughs) Take notes. (laughs) We'll have to make a bumper sticker. Don't be a bill dad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a good place to wrap for this week. Thanks, Tim, for taking on a tricky text. My pleasure. Friends, thanks for tuning in to First Reading this week. We hope you've gotten something helpful from this conversation, and if so, please consider taking a minute or two to share the episode with a preacher, teacher, or Bible lover in your life to help expand the First Reading podcast community. You can also help us keep this going by supporting the podcast financially. We welcome donations on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you'll also find nearly 200 searchable back episodes on almost every Old Testament passage in the lectionary. If you like to collect merch from your favorite podcasts, consider ordering a sturdy First Reading coffee mug or an insanely overpriced sticker. You can always reach us via email at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or, hey, drop us a line on Facebook. Our gratitude goes to dear people at Trinity Lutheran Seminary for their supportive grant. And once again, thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethal. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.